To entrust is sometimes to abandon. There was, during the first quarter of the present century, at Montfermeil, near Paris, a sort of chop house. It is not there now. It was kept by a man and his wife named Thenardier, and was situated in the lane Boulanger. Above the door nailed against the wall was a board, upon which something was painted that looked like a man carrying on his back another man wearing the heavy epaulets of a general, gilt and with large silver stars, red blotches typified blood, the remainder of the picture was smoke and probably represented a battle. Beneath was this inscription, to the Sergeant of Waterloo. Nothing is commoner than a cart or wagon before the door of an inn. Nevertheless, the vehicle, or more properly speaking, the fragment of a vehicle, which obstructed the street in front of the Sergeant of Waterloo one evening in the spring of 1818, certainly would have attracted by its bulk the attention of any painter who might have been passing. It was the forecarriage of one of those drays for carrying heavy articles used in wooded countries for transporting joists and trunks of trees. Why was this vehicle in this place in the street, one may ask? First to obstruct the lane and then to complete its work of rust. There is in the old social order a host of institutions which we find like this across our path in the full light of day and which present no other reasons for being there. The middle of the chain was hanging quite near the ground under the axle, and upon the bend, as on a swinging rope, two little girls were seated that evening in exquisite grouping, the smaller eighteen months old, in the lap of the larger, who was two and a half years old. A handkerchief carefully knotted kept them from falling. A mother looking upon this frightful chain had said, Ah, there is a plaything for my children. The mother, a woman whose appearance was rather forbidding, but touching at this moment, was seated on the sill of the inn, swinging the two children by a long string, while she brooded them with her eyes for fear of accident with that animal but a heavenly expression peculiar to maternity. At each vibration the hideous lynx uttered a creaking noise like an angry cry. The little ones were in ecstasies, the setting sun mingled in the joy, and nothing could be more charming than this caprice of chance which made of a titan's chain a swing for a cherubim. Suddenly the mother heard a voice say quite near her ear, You have two pretty children there, madam. A woman was before her at a little distance. She also had a child, which she bore in her, in her arms. She was carrying, in addition, a large carpet bag, which seemed heavy. This woman's child was one of the divinest beings that can be imagined, a little girl of two or three years. She might have entered the lists with the other little ones for coquetry of attire. She wore a headdress of fine linen, ribbons at her shoulders, and Valenciennes lace on her cap. The folds of her skirt were raised enough to show her plump, fine white leg. She was charmingly rosy and healthful. The pretty little creature gave one a desire to bite her cherry cheeks. We can say nothing of her eyes, except that they must have been very large and were fringed with superb lashes. She was asleep. She was sleeping in the absolutely confiding slumber peculiar to her age. A mother's arms are made of tenderness, and sweet sleep blesses the child who lies therein. As to the mother, she seemed poor and sad, 
She had the appearance of a working woman who was seeking to return to the life of a peasant. She was young and pretty. It was possible, but in that garb, beauty could not be displayed. Her hair, once blonde mesh, of which had fallen, seemed very thick, but it was severely fastened up beneath an ugly, close, narrow nun's headdress tied under the chin. Laughing shows fine teeth when one has them, but she did not laugh. Her eyes seemed not to have been tearless for a long time. She was pale and looked very weary and somewhat sick. She gazed upon her child sleeping in her arms with that peculiar look which only a mother possesses who nurses her own child. Her form was clumsily masked by a large blue handkerchief folded across her bosom. Her hands were tanned and spotted with freckles. The forefinger hardened and pricked with the needle. She wore a coarse brown delaine mantle, a calico dress, and large heavy shoes. It was one of those beings which are brought forth from the heart of the people. Sprung from the most unfathomable depths of social darkness, she bore on her brow the mark of the anonymous and unknown. She was born in M. Sewer, M., who were her parents. None could tell. She had never known either father or mother. She was called Fantine. Why so? Because she had never been known by any other name. She could have no family name, for she had no family. She could have no baptismal name, for then there was no church. She was named after the pleasure of the first passerby who found her, a mere infant, straying barefoot in the streets. She received a name as she received the water from the clouds in her head when it rained. She was called Little Fantine. Nobody knew anything more of her. Such was the manner in which this human being had come into life. At the age of ten, Fantine left the city and went to service among the farmers of the suburbs. At fifteen, she came to Paris to seek her fortune. Fantine was beautiful and remained pure as long as she could. She was a pretty blonde with fine teeth. She had gold and pearls for her dowry, but the gold was on her head and the pearls in her mouth. She worked to live, then also to live, for the heart too has its hunger she loved. To him it was an amour, to her a passion. The streets of the Latin Quarter, which swarmed with students at Grisette, saw the beginning of this dream. In short, the ecologue took place and the poor girl had a child. The father of her child gone, alas, such partings are irrevocable. She found herself absolutely isolated, and with the habit of labor lost, the taste for pleasure acquired. She had committed a fault, but in the depths of her nature, we know dwelt modesty and virtue. She had a vague feeling that she was on the eve of falling into distress, of slipping into the street. She must have courage. She had it and bore it bravely. The idea occurred to her of returning to her native village, M. Sur M. There, perhaps, someone would know her and give her work. Yes, but she must hide her fault. And she had a confused glimpse of the possible necessity of a separation still more painful than the first. Her heart ached, but she took her resolution. It will be seen that Fantine possessed the stern courage of life. At 22 years of age and a fine spring morning, she left Paris, carrying her child on her back. He who had seen the two passing must have pitied them. The woman had nothing in the world but this child, and this child had nothing in the world but this woman. Fantine had nursed her child, 
that had weakened her chest somewhat, and she coughed slightly. Toward noon, after having, for the sake of rest, traveled from time to time at a cost of three or four cents a league, in what they called then the Petite Vauture of the Environs of Paris, Fantine reached Montfermeil and stood in the lane Boulanger. As she was passing by the Thenardier chop house, the two little children sitting in delight on their monster's swing had a sort of dazzling effect upon her, and she paused before this joyous vision. There are charms. These two little girls were one for this mother. She beheld them with emotion. The presence of angels is a herald of paradise. She thought she saw about this inn the mysterious here of providence. These children were evidently happy. She gazed upon them. She admired them. So much affected that at the moment, when the mother was taking breath between the verses of her song, she could not help saying what we have been reading. You have two pretty children there, madame. The most ferocious animals are disarmed by caresses to their young. The mother raised her head and thanked her and made the stranger sit down on the stone step. She herself being on the door sill, the two women began to talk together. My name is Madame Thenardier, said the mother of the two girls. We keep this in. This Madame Thenardier was a red-haired, browny, angular woman of the soldier's wife type, in all its horror, and singularly enough, she had a lolling air which she had gained from novel reading. She was a masculine lackadaisicalness. Old romances impressed on the imaginations of mistresses of chop houses have such effects. She was still young, scarcely 30 years old. If this woman, who was seated stooping, had been upright, perhaps her towering form and her broad shoulders, those of a movable colossus, fit for a market woman, would have dismayed the traveler, disturbed her confidence, and prevented what we have to relate. A person seated instead of standing. Fate hangs on such a thread as that. The traveler told her story a little modified. She said she was a working woman and her husband was dead. Not being able to procure work in Paris, she was going in search of it elsewhere, in her province. That she had left Paris that morning on foot. That carrying her child, she had become tired and meeting the Via Mombley stage had got in that from Via Mombly she had come on foot to Montfermeil, that the child had walked a little, but not much. She was so young that she was compelled to carry her, and the jewel had fallen asleep. And at these words she gave her daughter a passionate kiss, which wakened her. The child opened its large blue eyes like its mother's, and saw what? Nothing. Everything with that serious and sometimes severe air of little children, which is one of the mysteries of their shining innocence before our shattery virtues. One would say that they felt themselves to be angels and knew us to be human. Then the child began to laugh and, although the mother restrained her, slipped to the ground with the indomitable energy of a little one that wants to run about. All at once she perceived the two others in their swing, stopped short, and put out her tongue in token of admiration. Mother Thenardier untied the children and took them from the swing saying, play together, all three of you. At that age, acquaintance is easy. And in a moment, the little Thenardiers were playing with the newcomer, making holes in the ground to their intense delight. 
This newcomer was very sprightly. The goodness of the mother is written in the gaiety of the child. She had taken a splinter of wood, which she used as a spade, and was stoutly digging, a hole fit for a fly. The gravedigger's work is charming, when done by a child. The two women continued to chat. What do you call your brat? Cosette. How old is she? She is going on three years. The age of my oldest. The three girls were grouped in an attitude of deep anxiety and bliss. A great event had occurred. A large worm had come out of the ground. They were afraid of it, and yet in ecstasies over it. Their bright foreheads touched each other. Three heads in one halo of glory. Children, exclaimed the Thenardier mother. How soon they know one another. See them? One would swear they were three sisters. These words were the spark which the other mother was probably awaiting. She seized the hand of Madame Thenardier and said, Will you keep my child for me? I must think over it, said Thenardier. I will give you six francs a month. Here a man's voice was heard from within. Not less than seven francs, and six months paid in advance. Six times seven are forty-two, said Thenardier. I will give it, said the mother. And fifteen francs extra for the first expenses, added the man. That's fifty-seven francs, said Madame Thenardier. I will give it, said the mother. I have eighty francs. That will leave me enough to go into the country if I walk. I will earn some money there, and as soon as I have, I will come back for my little love. The man's voice returned. Has the child a wardrobe? This is my husband, said Thenardier. Certainly she has, the poor darling. I knew it was your husband, and a fine wardrobe it is, too. An extravagant wardrobe, everything in dozens, and silk dresses like a lady. They are there in my carpet bag. You must leave that here, put in the man's voice. Of course I shall give it to you, said the mother. It would be strange if I should leave my child naked. The face of the master appeared. It is all right, said he. The bargain was concluded. The mother passed the night at the inn, gave her money, and left her child. Fastened against her carpet bag, diminished by her child's wardrobe, and very light now, she set off next morning, expecting soon to return. These paintings are arranged tranquilly, but they are full of despair. A neighbor of the Thenardiers met this mother on her way and came in saying, I have just met a woman in the street who was crying as if her heart would break. When Cosette's mother had gone, the man said to his wife, That will do me for my note of a hundred and ten francs, which falls due tomorrow. I was fifty francs short. Do you know I should have had a sheriff and a protest? You have proved a good mouse trap with your little ones. Without knowing it, said the woman. The captured mouse was a very puny one, but the cat exulted even over a lean mouse. What were the Thenardiers? They belonged to that bastard class formed of low people who have risen, and intelligent people who have fallen, which lies between the classes called middle and lower, and which unites some of the faults of the latter with nearly all of the vices of the former. 
without possessing the generous impulses of the workmen or the respectability of the bourgeois. They were of those dwarfish natures which, if perchance heated by some sullen fire, easily become monstrous. The woman was, at heart, a brute, the man a blackguard, both in the highest degree capable of that hideous species of progress which can be made toward evil. There are souls which, crab-like, crawl continually toward darkness, going back in life rather than advancing in it, using what experience they have to increase their deformity, growing worse without ceasing, and becoming steeped more and more thoroughly in an intensifying wickedness. Such souls were this man and this woman. To be wicked does not ensure prosperity, for the inn did not succeed well. Thanks to Fantine's 57 francs, Thenardier had been able to avoid a protest and to honor his signature. The next month they were still in need of money, and the woman carried Cosette's wardrobe to Paris and pawned it for 60 francs. When this sum was spent, the Thenardiers began to look upon the little girl as a child which they sheltered for charity and treated her as such. Her clothes being gone, they dressed her in the cast-off garments of the little Thenardiers, that is, in rags. They fed her on the orts and ends a little better than the dog, and a little worse than the cat. The dog and cat were her messmates. Cosette ate with them under the table in a wooden dish like theirs. Her mother, as we shall see hereafter, who had found a place at M. Sur, M., wrote, or rather had someone write for her, every month inquiring news of her child. The Thenardiers replied invariably, Cosette is doing wonderfully well. There are certain natures which cannot have love on one side without hatred on the other. This Thenardier mother passionately loved her own little ones. This made her detest the young stranger. Cosette could not stir that she did not draw down upon herself a hailstorm of undeserved and severe chastisements. A weak, soft little one who knew nothing of this world or of God, continually ill-treated, scolded, punished, beaten, she saw beside her two other young things like herself who lived in a halo of glory. The woman was unkind to Cosette. Iponine and Azelma were unkind also. Children at that age are only copies of the mother. The size is reduced, that is all. A year passed, and then another. People used to stay in the village. What good people these Thenardiers are. They are not rich, and yet they bring up a poor child that has been left with them. They thought Cosette was forgotten by her mother. From year to year the child grew, and her misery also. So long as Cosette was very small, she was the scapegoat of the two other children. As soon as she began to grow a little, that is to say, before she was five years old, she became the servant of the house. Cosette was made to run errands, sweep the rooms, the yard, the street, wash the dishes, and even carry burdens. The Thenardiers felt doubly authorized to treat her thus, as the mother, who still remained at M. Sur, M., began to be remiss in her payments. Some months remained due. Had this mother returned to Montferrat at the end of these three years, she would not have known her own child. Cosette, so fresh and pretty, when she came to that house, now thin and wan. She had a peculiar restless air. 
Sly, said the Thenardiers. Injustice had made her sullen, and misery had made her ugly. Her fine eyes only remained to her, and they were painful to look at, for, large as they were, they seemed to increase the sadness. It was a harrowing sight to see in the wintertime the poor child, not yet six years old, shivering under the tatters of what was once a calico dress, sweeping the street before daylight with an enormous broom in her little red hands and tears in her large eyes. In the place she was called the Lark. People like figurative names and were pleased thus to name this little being, not larger than a bird, trembling, frightened, and shivering, awake every morning, first of all in the house and the village, always in the street or in the fields before dawn. Only the poor Lark never sang.